0: He's gonna, gonna get, get you. you! He's gonna get you! He's gonna, He's gonna, gonna get, get you! you. Boogeyman is coming! Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. To round out my Evil Dead series revisit, it's finally time to chat about Fede Alvarez's 2013 remake Evil Dead, in which Mia, played by Jane Levy, asks her friends and brother David to take her to their remote family cabin to help her try to kick her drug habit. Though, it doesn't take long for the group to unearth the cabin's dark past, as they find and read aloud from The Book of the Dead, which awakens an ancient evil that promises they will all die tonight. And joining me this week to chat horror remakes, Evil Dead and Gallons of Gore, is writer and Daily Grindhouse contributor, Greg Mucci. Greg, welcome to the show.
1: Hey man, thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate
0: you bringing me on for probably one of the best horror remakes out there. Absolutely, man. And yeah, I had a blast chatting with you on Safe Room and getting to kind of pick your brain about film was something I was really eager to have the chance to do because, you know, we had such a great chat about Doom uh, that I was thinking about like movies that I've noticed through, you know, social media and Twitter or Letterboxd and whatnot, somebody that I thought had the same level of appreciation for this remake in particular that I do. Um, So, I'm really happy to kind of dive into this one in a little more depth, something that uh, previously I haven't had a chance to do. But, you know, as is tradition at Daily Horror Habit, uh, I like to ask first-time guests, uh, what was the first horror movie or moment that had a profound effect on you for uh, better or worse?
1: Um. I mean, I think
0: my first sort of impact
1: or brush or run in with horror was Frankenstein and the Wolfman sort of the classic universal monster movies. And, um, I, you know, absolutely fell in love with them, but when it comes to just the horror genre, really embracing what it does, uh, the shining, uh, I saw that when I was in third grade, I had a friend sleeping over, um, Avery, if you're listening, what's up. Um, and my dad, worked um, in a kitchen in New Haven, Connecticut, and he just had a bunch of sort of coworkers that would bring him VHS tapes and sort of, you know, I guess, open him up to horror. And I believe he probably had seen this before, but he brought home sort of like an unmarked tape, which just sort of adds to the ominous nature of, you know, what you're being introduced to. And it was The Shining. And granted I'm, at this point, I think I'm seven years old. and you know, me and my, my friend, we, we watch it with my dad and it's like, it was just like a strange feeling. We were so like captivated and hip, and hypnotized by it. Just like, uh, you know, the score by Wendy Carlos, uh, the camera movements, John Alcott, just like everything about it was so like captivating. And I don't know in that moment, if I felt terror and that's probably because I was, you know, in the company of my dad who at that time was like, you know, the greatest protector and also my friend. So you have this air of like trying to play it cool, um, but you know we watched the movie and afterwards we went to you know went to bed, and he woke up is like screaming, terrified, and we had to drive him home. And I ended up later having a nightmare of you know the room, the woman in room two thirty seven, and it was like so profound and traumatizing that I think until I was probably about. 13. I checked behind the shower current every time I went into the bathroom. Um, but that, that was the first movie that sort of like showed how epic horror can be and that how like, you know, impacting it can be. And um, I think that same year I ended up following up with a uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which also, you know, now that Stranger Things season four is sort of like, you know, pushing that beat a little bit. Um, yeah, that, that had a, huge, had a huge effect on me when I was also seven and Yeah, they those are two movies that sort of remain my all-time favorites when it comes to looking back at things that shaped you.
0: Yeah, you know, it's I love doing this icebreaker with new guests so much because you get to kind of connect the dots in terms of while everybody generally has different tastes, obviously in terms of like genres or subgenres, right? I start to see a lot of similarities in terms of our overall, you know, first entry into horror or just our introductions to horror and, you know, universal monsters being very much a first introduction for a lot of people, myself included. But then I'm also kind of like laughing because thinking about, you know, uh, there have been so many examples of, and even in my own life, like fathers that, you know, they notice that their kid is maybe gravitating towards this horror movie or something very tame, right? Like the Universal Monsters. And then for whatever reason, they kind of make this leap in judgment where they're like, well, they like the Universal Monsters. Let's go and show them, like you'd said, The Shining, or in my case, my dad who, who was not like a horror guy at all, really. Like he wasn't the one that introduced me to horror. My grandparents did. But then when he found out I liked it, he was like, oh, like you'll like these uh, universal monster movies. And then for whatever reason at like, I think eight or nine, he was like, oh, we should watch The the Exorcist. Like that's one of the greatest horror movies of all time. But just like thinking back on it it was like such a leap in terms of like having an interest in horror and then showing what is a – incredibly traumatizing uh, horror movie still to this day in many ways. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I think it's funny that when you're sitting down as a kid and watching like an actual terrifying movie for the first time, you do have this sort of like mixed emotions during it. Right. Like you'd said, trying to playing it cool for me, like not really fully grasping the complexities of what's going on with the story, but there's like beginning to become very, very tense and uncomfortable in terms of like, seeing the little girl go through to the doctor and there's like this very horrific portrayal of like medical experiments and these things. Um, And it's almost like your reaction to what you're watching is delayed in the sense that like, it's not till much later in the night that you actually start to be terrified, right? And just seeing like how that movie has that impact on you and how once your brain kind of gets used to the idea of like what horror is, what can be in horror. And then your brain starts like replaying the actual scary bits. And of course, then it often ends up in, uh, in waking up in the middle of the night, terrified and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing with the shining is that, um, you know, a lot of it isn't under the guise of shadows. It's not really a very dark film. There's not really much, many jump scares outside of Jack Torrance sort of jumping out and killing Dick Halloran. But like, I remember watching it and like, it gets to the scene where Scatman Crothers is sitting in bed Sort of tuning with the shining or hearing uh danny and it just pans out slowly and you just get like these framed photos of these naked women and like i remember us like you know giggling because we're seven and you know and but now at 35 i watch that i'm like this is so heavy and so ominous that, like, that but like, i totally like, agree that like you're sort of introduced to like universal monsters and then the next step is sort of like getting the chair kicked out from under you. It's like, it's like introducing <laughs> yeah. somebody to, you know, the Muppets and having them see Uncle Deadly. And then it's like, oh, okay. So, like, you like Uncle Deadly. Well, like, here's Freddy fucking Kruger. And it's like, that's to me <laughs> right. completely, like, I don't know. I, I did a list like a while ago for um, some site where I did like the 10 sort of like introductory horror films that sort of build you into, I guess, like more R rated fare. And like, i think parents sometimes you know and i'm glad they did it with me but they don't have the best judgment calls they'll just sort of jump from like 10 to 4 when you should really hitting that 987 but yeah no i mean it's probably the best thing i mean my dad was very much into like sort of cold war science fiction um you know we watched a ton of like early blob war of the worlds uh a lot of like the early Ray Harryhausen stuff before like, you know, seventh voyage of Sinbad. But yeah, uh, it's the horror movies that he introduced me to that I'm like, you know, sort of shaped me into who
0: I am today. I feel like dads collectively have that rite of passage where like you'd said, they want to kick the chair off from and see like, if this kid can really hang with what, <laughs> with what kind of films I'm into uh, and seeing if, you know, he's going to go wrap me out to, uh, to his mother about what I'm showing him and whatnot. But yeah, you know, it's one of those very, early formative experiences with horror that you know it hits in a way for i'm sure people like you and i that are you know horror fans and you know seek out from even mainstream horror to like the weirder side or lesser known types of horror movies and stuff like that kind of chasing that feeling almost of like genuine terror at the unknown right in a way Mm -hmm. that um you know these days the amount of films i watch that feeling is something that i'm not always finding but you know I think that if we didn't have those very like formative moments in our horror histories, um, you know, you might tap out on the genre like some, I mean, there are genres of film that I watched as a kid that I'd rarely watch now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't have the same relationship with like my inception into horror or into those other genres like I do with horror in, uh, in a way that, you know, has, has shaped me as a uh, 30 year old horror fan. But, you know, in going from like, our intro to horror and the horror movie or moment that really shaped us as now lifelong fans. I mean, to this day, like one of the most divisive topics, and it's not only in horror genre uh, is remakes, right? And how fan bases are still going to, and probably always will be divided on that topic. Um, And so when you look at a film like evil dead, 2013, obviously it's going to be divisive, right? Because the film at its core is very different from the originals, right? There are obviously variables that are the similar setting that's similar, but it lacks, and obviously purposefully so, it lacks what people have come to love over the course of the original Evil Dead franchise, and that being that three-film run of the Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and Army of Darkness. So I'm curious, like for you, what is your opinion on horror remakes? And this is a judgment-free zone if we agree perfect if not that's no worries um well i mean i
1: to an extent i actually hope that we don't agree i think that sort of creates more of a and more engaging and interesting sort of discussion but you have a mm-hmm. feeling that we probably will agree um i mean evil dead is a lot of people i think point to it as like an outlier as like a, oh you know they're not all like this and like for sure a lot of them are like one missed call or pulse and There's a lot of stuff that came from like you know the post-J horror craze outside of probably The Ring, and I don't know. I have a soft spot for The Grudge just because I am a huge, I guess, softy for jump scares. Like I think you know they're easy to see coming, but they just like they're just kind of effective on me. You know, outside of like Hmm. you know, I don't know, closing a fridge door or the ref like the mirror bathroom mirror reflective scare. But like I there has to be a panache that you have with remakes or it has to be a sort of generational focus, which is why I think invasion of the body snatchers has always been sort of like one of the best uh, remakes and even Abel Freire's body snatchers, you know, taps into the nineties and it it focuses a lot more on like militarization. And I love that movie. And I think that I love um, the seventies one. I love, I think, want to say late fifties, maybe early sixties, uh, the original, but yeah, I think if you take into account the decade, how different things are, this like societal strain. I think if you tap into that and you put like evil Dead, I will say doesn't do that. It just reworks it into a much more somber and downtrodden tone. Uh, and I think that, I mean, i'm just gonna like i guess quickly list off some of my favorite horror remakes and there are a ton out there and i like there's i guess you know if you're on twitter you always sort of get every like three months or so the question of like what horror remake is better than the original and like i i'm gonna say the ones that i'm listing off i think uh, i won't say that they're better because like you mentioned before you recently watched the maniac remake and i absolutely love it i think it's It's shaping something with the POV. Uh, Elijah Wood's great. I think that, you know, he's no Joe Spinell. And I think that's what really works in creating. So unnerving is that you have, you know, someone named like, someone like Elijah Wood, who's everyone associates with Frodo or Eternal Sunshine um, or The Good Son. Uh, But yeah, so Maniac, I think is an excellent remake. The Blob's one of my all time favorite movies, House of Wax. I mean, of course you have The Thing. I'm a huge defender of Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Uh, the cut is like, I think just masterful. I think it's like really tragic and yeah, what, what the wine scenes ended up putting out in theaters is sort of what it's been, I don't know, I guess associated with, which kind of sucks because they're vastly different movies, but even like the Texas Chancellor Massacre, uh, we got Fright Night, Spiria, Hills Have Eyes, Black Xmas, which i've probably done like a huge 180 on in the past like three years because when i first watched it i was like you know because black christmas is one of my favorite uh horror films in general but i was just like this is just like it's just so stupid it's so trashy and then i'd watch it again every christmas and i'd be like you know something that's what i love about it like i this is what i want from it because like you just have like a killer who's got jaundice and looks like an eraser running around doing and like you have someone living (laughs) attic and they collect eyeballs and it's just so it's a very mean-spirited movie and i think you know and so is the original but this one's just dumb and i think but it's in the best way possible but then i mean inside the french film from 2007 is also a remake of a film from the same name uh we got nasferatu the Werner herzog one talented sundown that came out in 2014. like i really do think like the list goes on i mean Cronenberg's the fly um but yeah you really can't say that remakes are inherently bad um I think the idea of a remake generally stems from a bad place of just you know we want to capitalize on this or that there's already a fan base and I do think that would need more original content out there but if you take you know a, a remake and you shift it to the point where it's not like uh the shot for shot remake of Psycho. I think that you can have something that's super ingenious, super innovative and something that's like uh, essentially its own film. Cause I mean, I I remember after Evil Dead, I was like, I left the theater being like, I really hope that we get that tone and those characters with like Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. And I would love to see like Mia in a medieval setting, you know? you know <laughs> right. they ended up not i mean i think there's there's what a new evil dead movie coming out the end of this year supposedly yeah and i don't know anything about it but you know you have my attention especially with like the evil dead game having come out Ash evil dead like it's doing stuff that i feel like nightmare on elm street and friday the 13th sort of fell behind on because it was like oh shit, okay well we haven't had a a friday the 13th movie in a while like let's make jason goes to hell and then jason x and then and it's like okay but like with evil dead i feel like lately especially we've just had a constant influx of of i don't know gifts bestowed upon us that really keep our interest and it's a franchise that i think has so much room to grow especially because it deals with the past medieval times i mean you could go anywhere with it and I will say, you know, before I move any further, I've I bought the first season of Ash vs. Evil Dead* and I still have not opened it. And I really think like, that's a, that's a show that now that I'm like, you know, kind of getting through shows and finishing things, that's that's something I need to sort of start. But yeah, no, I think horror remakes get a bad rep, and if you just easily do a Google search or your homework, you'll find that it's you know, there's a plethora of excellent, excellent remakes that have been essentially coming back since like the sixties.
0: Yeah. I mean, my thing has always been, I'd never view anything as being precious, right? That being an IP or characters and this and that, right? Cause if I enjoy the original film, like nothing that comes after it is going to change that. Um, and if I want something similar to that, I'll just go back and rewatch that movie. And my thing has always been, I view remakes as being a opportunity to give new creative visionaries their this toolbox that's somewhat familiar, right? Because obviously it's based off of something, but allowing them to, you know, have enough resources, hopefully, to pursue something that more often than not they have a vested interest in previously, and getting to run wild with that in whatever creative means they want. Right. I've never been one of those people that views it and it's like, well, Evil Dead, if you don't have Ash and you know, a wisecracking protagonist, you have nothing. Yeah. Like it's like, well, I don't know why you would – expect for starters, when you're talking about Evil Dead, if you see the trailer, it's like clearly the tone is what they are going for, right? The setting's familiar. Essentially, it is the same type of, you know, Deadite curse and whatnot, but without a lot more of the explaining of the uh, lore, right? They don't even say Deadites. Um, So, it's stripping that away and the focus is more on the tone, which I really love. And I guess people that maybe are not as keen on remakes as you and I are see that as being like, well – Why even associate it with Evil Dead then? But at the same time, I view it as being like, well, it's taking elements that are so intrinsic to Evil Dead and just giving you something that might be familiar here or there, but it's exploring it in a way that, you know, a portion of the fan base maybe, or just people that enjoy horror films in general maybe, would want to see them go down that avenue. And I'm always in favor of directors that want to take creative liberties with things because again, like if I wanted more of classic Evil Dead, I'd go back and watch it. Or, you know, as you'll learn when you watch uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead, like, you can get that, right? They have not abandoned that sort of avenue or those characters or that approach with the IP. So, the idea that all of a sudden, because something doesn't match up tonally or it's devoid of something that you loved about the original films – I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's just something that, like, the older you get, you kind of grow out of. Hopefully, right? I mean, I was probably very opinionated about remakes when I was in high school at sixteen or seventeen or whatever. But now, just being like able to detach fandom and just appreciate something for the vision that a director or creative team had, um, and more often than not, like, even if it was something that people would say, "Oh, it's just a shot for shot," or you could even classify it as being a shot for shot, chances are, like. Sure, they're saying that, but the techniques that have evolved over the years or potentially decades, right, since the original was released or multiple decades, like that's going to create something new in a way that can be enjoyable, not to say it's always going to uh, surpass the original, but it's something that could be an accompaniment to that. And it could be something that, you know, a new generation might go and see a remake of a classic horror movie and they're like, well, this is new and this kind of is looking in the realm of what I'm generally watching these days. And they might not be inclined to go watch, you know, 60s, 70s, or even 80s horror movies. So that remake, that more modern remake could almost be like the stepping stone to the classic. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Remakes are one of those things that like you'd said, um, I see a post on that seemingly every week where someone's like, what is the best horror remake? Or what do you like about the new one that you hate about the original one? And, you know, other than viewing those as like just farming for uh, for likes and you know audience interactions and stuff like that, I just never found that conversation interesting. Like, what is which one is better? It's like, well, they're all if it is a good remake, it's doing something different. It's not doing exactly the same thing. I would hope. Yeah, and I mean, I don't you
1: know I don't fault those questions on Twitter really, or like I don't really engage with them because like for the most part they're probably newer horror fans or maybe younger horror fans. But I mean, I guess like for anyone that doesn't know on the remake since like we are kind of talking about like tone like the big difference with this over the 1981 original is that instead of uh four friends going to it or five friends yeah Cheryl or four, four friends uh going to a well here it's five I think it was four in the original uh, maybe I'm wrong maybe it was five Whatever it was, just, you know, five friends going to a cabin to sort of have a weekend together, and then you know they listen to a recording that unleashes uh, demons or deadites in the woods, and you know they slowly get possessed one by one. And here the main difference is that they're all going to a cabin to help their friend Mia uh, wean off of what I believe is heroin, and so it's essentially them isolating themselves in the woods for three days while she detoxes, and. You know that right there like creates this tone that's you know paired really well with the visuals because it's like a very grimy overgrown and just very like uh dead like i mean you go in there and you could already smell the cabin before mia um played by jane levy starts to sort of smell this odor of the basement but uh it's one of those movies that um you know it uses digital but i think it uses digital and it uses a little bit of CGI he uses them so well because this is a very like uh, texturally uh, texturally coded film where like it's not smooth. Like I really love *Malignant*, but that's a film that's very smooth. I don't really get much like uh, of a feel to it. But this movie just like aesthetically, I think it's beautiful, and it's it's pu- mostly in part because it kind of stays true to what Sam Raimi and crew did in the original, which is all practical effects and. But yeah, the, the the making it sort of an allegory on addiction or detoxing, and like you know, it's 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 always in question of what Mia is seeing. Is it based off of the Latin that was read, or is it based off of her just sort of detoxing? And that's what sort of create like stirs this pot of like the, the tension between the characters. And that's something within this remake that I really applaud because it's just it's taking. This like loose mold from the original and then it's shaping it on its own and i think that's like just sort of ingenious and yeah and it's kind of crazy because if you watch the first evil dead there's 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 humor you know absolutely but once stuff kind of starts popping off it's very it's very bleak and it's very gruesome and it doesn't really play for laughs that much like there's some definite definite like uh facial twitches that um Bruce Campbell has especially when he's sort of debating internally with killing his girlfriend with a chainsaw but yeah it's not really until evil dead 2 dead by dawn where like it really pops off as like uh, a horror comedy or like splat stick kind of kind of stuff but yeah here it really forgoes that and it's you know things I think Mia gets possessed by I want to say like the 15 minute mark so you have You know if you're watching the theatrical versions 91 minutes versus the unrated which adds five more minutes you know you have essentially just like an hour and 10 minutes of uh, a roller coaster just shooting you down at like 90 miles per hour and that's what i love about it it's just like it doesn't let up and yeah it is probably like one of the fastest 90 minutes that you'll watch but it's also like just super unnerving
0: yeah, it's absolutely draining for the uh, the runtime, which always catches me off guard every time I revisit it. Because like you said, I mean, the unrated cut, which I definitely recommend to people, I mean, it adds five extra minutes. And if anything, that feels like 10 probably minutes in terms of just overall like of it being this thing that never really lets you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like what you were saying about like the texture of the film, it so smartly, you know, handles that, you know, addiction detox angle of the character and her arc and this, and you know, how that affects the relationships with characters by pairing that with this just oppressive portrayal, aggressively oppressive portrayal of just, you know, the swamps, everything is wet. You feel like you're constantly like trying to dry your hands, or if you're not looking where you're going, you're going to snag your elbow on something or, you know, get a vine wrapped around your leg in a way that, you know, it complements the film through and through. And I think that it mostly is in part to the fact that, you know, it plays off of, the characters and their arc and their predicaments and yet also like you're really unnerved right from the beginning of the movie and it's not necessarily like you're immediately scared or presented with you know jump scares or demons or this and that right out the gate but it just feels like a movie that you immediately have to like look over your shoulder almost because you're just like you get the sense that something's there right i mean there's that line when after Mia gets possessed where she's like, "It's," in, I think it's in the room with us. And that kind of is how I feel the entire time I'm watching it, right? As if that embodied camera of the demon or spirit that uh, Raimi was so well known for, like as if that thing is hovering behind you while you're watching the entire time. Um, and it really does capture the sense that they're trapped in a way. And this was something that I didn't really appreciate or pick up on the first few times I watched, but they're very slight additions or rather reworkings of why they're trapped there, right? In the original movies, it's like, well, clearly a demonic force has destroyed the bridge so they can't go home. But with this remake, like, no, it's that the road is flooded, which is very much like that's something that happens, especially if this movie is supposed to take place um, in Tennessee, like the original one did. I assume it was supposed to, but just in general, what I mean is like in terms of creating an atmosphere that's oppressive, but also, Not allowing you to leave, but stripping the supernatural element to that. I find that that just kind of further sells the idea that like this is applying focus more to the characters and specifically like Mia's plight rather than necessarily just placing all the blame at the foot of demons and deadites, right? It kind of, for me at least, it takes the best parts of that, which is, you know, the possession and the body horror elements, but – it removes a little bit of the mysticism, which I think allows me to have more buy-in to this as being like not only what I find to be a respectful and more mature approach to like what is the classic detox character dealing with addiction, but when you strip away some of the mysticism elements of it, it just it presents it as more believable for me in a way that I think really works for this movie.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's so weird because like you know you like you talk about Scream twenty twenty two and how it's you know it's sort of part of this discussion is like the requel and it's like you look back at Evil Dead twenty thirteen and I mean Freddy Rivera is I think confirmed in like twenty eighteen at MovieWeb he said that you know it's a it's a continuation of the first one and I mean you even have Ash's car rusting away um, at the cabin. And you know, this is like, I I mean, I'm I'm not going to state that it's the first one, but it's definitely one of the earlier quote-unquote requels. Um, But yeah, it's, and and that's the thing that's sort of beautiful about it is that it doesn't really ask you to like, you know, go back and rewatch the originals to understand this, because it's so, so, you know, it it, it starts off so grounded in this reality, but it also does this really um, sort of smooth job at, at, giving exposition about mia and about how she od'd before and this isn't the first time that you know they're trying to detox and this tension she has with her brother um david played by shallow fernandez and it's just like you get all that within you know minutes of you know Mm -hmm. just just talking and feeling the film out and i you know i'll say this right now i think Shallow fernandez is not my favorite actor. I think he's really great in white bird in a, in a blizzard. Um, but yeah, he just like, doesn't sell me on it. And a lot of his line delivery here, I find just barely passable, but like what I love about this is that it sort of subverts the characters that we have come to, to love through evil dead where it's like, okay, David, um, is starts off kind of as your Ashley, like your Ash. And, Mia is your uh Carol, and then uh you know, within the last twenty five minutes, it's like you know, I'm glad you thought that, and now we're just gonna flip it on its head because now we have Mia who is essentially your ash, and David mm-hmm. ends up being the one who needs to be sort of rescued um and yeah, though I mean you know, and then from there it just sort of pops off for the last twenty minutes going completely metal on us, but yeah, uh, I think it does a really good job at sort of taking this understanding and this passion for the original and just sort of making it its its own and you know I, it's it's crazy that it's written by Federal Veras and Rodo Sayaguas who's oh, I'm, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly um and I think they both worked on Don't Breathe but and it was also yeah passed along to Diablo Cody to doctor mm-hmm. the script um you know, to make it, to kind of Americanize it, you know, since Fedel there isn't, an, and are uh English isn't their first language. But yeah, uh, I think it's just crazy that she had a bit of a, a hand in it. And I mean, I don't know. I think some people who are a bit, um, I guess, unfair to this film would probably say that the dialogue is crap. And I don't think so. I think it's, it's there when it needs to be. But the thing that speaks the most to everybody is the effects and sort of the... I don't know. The 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 whirlwind that is uh the, the 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 last hour or so. But yeah, it's I don't know, it's it's a it's a remake that I think really sort of subverts expectations because I remember when I heard about this being remade um you know before it came out and it ended up coming out I think in April of 2013. Um I was just yeah very dismissive, you know, I was younger, but also just kind of like how dare you touch, you know, such a sacred movie. And yeah, I don't know. I I, I was an idiot because it's, you know, so it's, it's, it's a wonderful job.
0: Well, it's one of those things that it's like you always, and I would bring it back to what I said earlier, right. It's something with age, like you kind of learn to be maybe a little more reserved and wait to see kind of once you actually get to see the project, right. It's easy to kind of be like when you're a fan of something and it's like, Oh, they're going to bring this back after all this time and, you know, the original director and the original protagonists are not attached outside of, you know, producing the movie, obviously, but like you can be very skeptical of the things that you are very precious about, Mm -hmm. right? And that is something I think with age, like you learn to kind of just like wait a beat and actually see the final product sometimes before you, you know, immediately dismiss it. But, you know, before moving on, I wanted to touch upon like the film's ability to subvert your expectations, you know, obviously – There's a great indication in the marketing, the trailer and this and that, that, you know, they're going for a tonal shift from what people are used to. But I think even in the way that – and that's kind of piggybacking off what you had said in terms of like within the first 15 minutes, we know the players, we know their history, we can sense the fact that like, yeah, something is coming for them and whatnot. Um, But I think like just the way that the movie opens, right, where you have this young woman that's running through the woods being pursued by what is two men. And they shove a bag over her head and knock her out, right? And you're assuming, like, oh, this is someone that's about to be brutalized. Mm-hmm. And then just having that f- essentially like flipped on your head and being like, oh, this is actually somebody that's been possessed. And this is what happens if you allow the spirit. Like, I find that that is so, is not only like shocking initially, but I think it does a great job again of stripping some of the mysticism elements behind it, right? We don't get a lot of background on, like, oh, well, it's because of, you know, this evil curse and this and that. Like, there's allusions to it, right? And we explore the Book of the Dead and whatnot later in the film. But the film is very smartly smart in the sense that it avoids proselytizing the sort of, like, history or the warning about the Deadites and all this stuff that, again, I think that if they had focused on that element or they tried to include that element – then the tone would kind of not flow as well as it does, I think, or the commitment to that tone of being very distinctly different. Um, and I think that the movie, you know, st- frequently subverts your expectations about characters or just overall, like the way that situations can play out um, in a way that I think leans into Alv- some of Alvarez's, you know, sensibilities as a filmmaker and whatnot, and just leaning into an avenue that, and a tone rather, that he is very strong. And I think in that being something that is very bleak where, you know, you're not sure you're kind of second guessing constantly whether there could ever be a happy ending or what is a happy ending in this universe that he's operating in or creating in some instances, like, what does that look like? Because it's probably not going to be the traditional, uh, the traditional happy ending that some people maybe expect and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think something that we should get into and which specifically I think is a strength of his is, you know, visceral violence. Um, and, you know, we earlier described, especially with evil dead Two, dead by day, uh, dead by daylight, uh, the fact that, you know, it is a film that is very slapsticky. It does have a lot of humor in it, but it also has a lot of like absurdist violence in it. Um, and this film, you know, tonally, not only in the fact of like what the characters are dealing with, their relationships, but, you know, the violence is visceral. It's gory. It's in your face. It speaks to, you know, not being an overreliance on CGI, being mostly practical. Um, I mean, how does that l- approach land for you? <laughs> Wait, so, have you been playing a lot of Dead by Daylight recently? Uh, I actually just started dabbling back into that a little okay. bit because you, you, you called it Dead by Daylight, which I think was like to me. I'm like, oh, oh shit, I must have been playing that game a lot. Um, but
1: yeah, no, they're very like similar titles. Um, well, I have like a lot of mixed feelings about the um, the opener. Is that it? Like tone? Like I think visually, it hits the mark. Like, I love like the of like fogland woods it feels very isolating it feels very sweaty and gross uh, all things i sort of want in a backwoods horror which i guess you know in some ways you can label this but it almost feels too much like it's coming off of the hills have eyes remake i mean you even have like an air raid siren in the background being used along with um you know the orchestral music um, you have two characters one is literally called toothless redneck and the other one is long-haired redneck and it just feels like it's almost tapping into uh hillbilly horror which i you know i like wrong turn i can't say the same really for three and four um but it feels like it's i guess trying to pull in other components of recent genres to sort of establish itself but what i really appreciate about this is that you know you never really i never i guess until this film thought about the demon's use of like gender and why it possesses women and it's sort of you know the same way back to like the salem Witch trials where it's just like well you know they're more vulnerable quote-unquote vulnerable and men won't believe them and it you know more like you know as women will be labeled as like you know conniving or tricksters and i think that like this like Mia being the main character in the first one possessed, especially her being in such like a weakened, fragile state, I think it really sort of plays off that without being too heavy-handed. And I do like that, you know, I mean, then we go back down, once they, I guess for lack of a better term, tag and bag this woman who ends up being the daughter of um, a man named Harold uh, who just essentially needs to cleanse the demon from his, his you know daughter essentially by killing her but you know there's like three methods of doing that which is like by flame uh dismemberment or burial and so you know he's gonna burn her and but like you have this woman there who's you know and they have you have other family members are there and one of them is like you know looks like a burn victim probably because from the demon and it all just reeks of like sort of a, like hillbilly uh energy but we move away from that but like i think the fun fun thing the sort of i don't know i guess it's an an easter egg is that you have this woman there who's just reciting welsh and it doesn't really answer any it doesn't try and like you know answer why she's there or give much context or history to the demon you know like to 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 anyone who's into horror or into mythology or anything like that it's like like demonology has been around for you know forever So you really it's a, I think I feel like you're gonna waste time trying to pinpoint it and this movie doesn't do that. but I guess in me doing some like you know homework, it's like you have Arthur who is a central figure in um, Army of Darkness and he's got a lot of ties to Welsh. and so you got this woman spouting Welsh who's tr- sort of there to tr- sort of spur on this exorcism um, which I really like about it and then you get this like hard title uh, um, card and yeah and then you know so it already starts off with all like a lot of visceral violence um and you know federal there has already said that like they used essentially no cgi except for like some touch-ups and you know he states that he understands why cgi is used because they they did a 70-day shooting night which is like just exhausting i can like only imagine and you know you, you watch this and there are some things you know i think fire is probably you know for the most part cgi in some of the scenes but you know when mia is getting attacked by the branches and it's like the infamous rape scene it you could easily say like that's cgi but it's not and i think that's like the beauty of the visceral violence is that it's sort of all hard to watch but also you can't look away because there's like a wizardry to it there's like you know there's the roger murray did the prosthetics and you know you just talk about like the scene where Natalie, who's David's boyfriend who's along for the ride, ends up severing her arm off after her hand gets possessed or uh bitten by Mia and it's like one of the greatest things like ever because it's it's a long take uh it's sort of unflinching, and it's all prosthetic and I mean, I think that they used something along the lines of like seven hundred thousand gallons of blood in the entire film, you know, versus the original, which used two hundred to three hundred so it's like I feel like they went into this film with an idea of how many gallons of blood they used. It's like they had, they had to have known, well, we have these practical effects from the original that were, you know, uh, innovative for the budget. I don't know if they were game changers, but you know, Mm -hmm. watching that film now there's like some puppetry there. There's like claymation almost like there's like a lot of like ingenious use of these effects. And I'm not at all going to say that, you know, 31 years later, it looks real, but that's like not 31, wow, 41? Holy crap. Um, you know, look real, but like it's movie magic. And I think that this film taps into that. And that's what like I love about it because I'm I for one, if it's straight CGI, it's I don't find it magical. You lose me. But we sort of like there's this beautiful blend of like, if you use like I rewatched Dante's peak recently, and I was like, oh man, like you have CGI and you have matte backgrounds and it really works beautifully and i think that like if you start to marry these components you have magic you have like a really sort of breathtaking film and this does that by just using the CGI to touch things up but it makes the visceral violence so much more like felt uh when you're using practical and it they it's it, it's an insane job i think like this is like a masterclass in that and i would you know be surprised if classes let's like film classes on prosthetics or on special effects or whatever don't use this film and i also think Mm. that my my favorite thing in this film because you mentioned before about watching this and feeling this like creeping sense of like dread and like things in in the room and like i i totally think that that's heavily part of the like the sound effects and the sound design uh the sound designer Stephen hunter flick who did speed basic instinct sam Raimi spider-man but he also did twister and the thing i love about that is that if you watch twister it's like the sound design for the tornado it's like it's screaming at you it's like a, it's, a, it's like an animal trying to like eat up the landscape and that's how i sort of feel about the demon in this film is that like you watch it using like the steady cam to sort of like coming through the landscape and moving at like breakneck speeds it's almost as if it's like consuming everything in front of it and it feels very much like like an animal like some untamed beast and the sound in this from like the bones cracking to uh you have olivia when she's possessed in the shower severing like cutting through her mouth you just like you just hear it and it just adds to the terror because there are moments when you're not seeing things you're just hearing it and it really starts. Mm. It, it it keeps your adrenaline and your your fear going and then you just see all this stuff on like a visceral level and it just sort of floors you and i know you know i have a friend who isn't really the biggest fan of this he's very much into sort of the older school films and he thinks that it's just like you know it's just a gore fest and like you're not wrong but like it's tapping into what that what that can do it's not just there for like on like a superficial level um i think you know the sound design like i was talking about with cgi and practical effects like the sound marries the the effects work and they both like kind of just skip through like a puddle of blood for like an hour and a half
0: saying that it is like a gore fest it's like sure you can give that to somebody but it is like the most refined Skin crawling version of that, right? So, if anything like that is one of those uh, amendments that you always have to put on stuff because people are very quick sometimes to like dismiss things as this or that, but it's like, yeah, it is that in a way, but it's the best possible version of that that you could see, yeah. um, at least in uh, my opinion. And you know, I think part of what you said about the sound design rings so true in why I find in the remake that the demon and the spirit just it seems so much more. Malevolent and conniving in a way that I at least maybe didn't necessarily always think about in terms of like the classic movies, because and maybe that has something to do in terms of the more slapsticky nature. Because obviously, it is very much the case of like it playing with its food, that food being ash, right? In terms of like purposely pissing him off and trying to, you know, infuriate him and all of these things. And in this movie, I mean, for stars, the fact that it's targeting a character that themselves is struggling or is in a weakened stance state because of, you know, their addiction and struggles with that. But also once Mia becomes possessed, right, and part of this has to do with the sound design is that the acts that she is committing to, you know, pass on the kind of very much more of a body horror centric thing of like, it's not only just a bite to, you know, and, and possess somebody else or you know grow the ranks of the deadites but also you know like vom- purposefully getting on top of somebody and vomiting this demonic possession bile into their mouth like yeah you've seen something like that and that is like again not necessarily something that's a game changer but the sound behind that And then, you know, periodically it probably has to do, you know, with Jane Levy's performance where she's like giggling or laughing after she does things or sometimes the camera cuts to her and she's smiling after some horrific event has just happened. And it's a film that, you know, just at every turn, it seems that not only does it have this level of practical work in terms of the gore, which delivers, you know, in more ways than one, which, you know, we'll keep talking about, but, you know, having – the sound design behind it heightens everything. And then it's the little nuances and some of the performances that just show that this is again, like a creature or as an entity that is taking pleasure in what it's doing to these people, but it feels so much more purposeful than just to like play with its food. It's like, well, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it to them in the most disfiguring and, you know, disgusting way possible. And I mean, that scene that you mentioned where you have the one character, uh, uh, Olivia, that's like sawing off her face. Like, my thing I always come back to is that something is more terrifying when you hear it first mm. than when you actually like see it up front, right? And the fact that you hear her literally sawing through her face and she's, you know, hunched over and then, of course, uh, Eric goes to like touch her shoulder and turn her around and it's very much what you assumed she was doing at that point because, you know, it cuts back and forth to the book and whatnot that alludes to that's something that, you know, the possessed will do. But The fact that you have to hear it and you have to occupy that space before you're shown the results of what she's doing to herself, like that, just makes it that much more sickening. And then, of course, it's got the fantastic practical effects that sell that in a way that uh, that still remains shocking, no matter how many times I've seen this. And I think that could be said of you know whether it's uh, Natalie sawing off her arm and then you know she turns around and the arm is still hanging by a thread. And then it just like hits on the ground and there's like this sickening plop sound. Yeah, Um, Um, yeah, I mean, I think
1: like sort of going back to, I mean, you know, I I brought The Shining up as being sort of uh, pivotal to my, you know, upbringing. Um, But like, it's the same thing when, when Jack goes into room 237. Like, you know... That there's supposedly a ghost or a woman who choked Danny so we have this slow camera sort of creeping into 237 and it gives you like the audience like enough time to sort of think what is this what does it look like and then uh, you know the shower curtain peels back and you're like okay you know like a beautiful naked woman not exactly what I was thinking and then you get the reflection for like corroded just sort of disintegrated sloppy body just like in the mirror like (laughs) that's what i was thinking of and like it's you know total whiplash and that's what works is because like you are given enough time to sort of conjure these these images and like you said with olivia in the shower like yeah you're i mean you get a glimpse of it in the mirror before it shatters um but it's just the song sounds because everything especially that i see on screen i just like I feel it. Like my hair stands up and it's just, it gets under your skin and this movie just like effectively knows how to like peel back, you know, some skin and just crawl in and just sort of like live inside of you. And I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, going back to subverting sort of expectations, it's like, you know, when she's like trapped under the, she's in the basement and she's sort of like, you know, uh, stoking, uh, Natalie to cut her arm off. Like, you know, it's, Going back to Linda's character. And it's just like you have Mia embodying like Cheryl, uh, Linda, Ash. And it's just like such a genius way of using one character because you have a very limited setting. You have a cabin, you have woods, you have four friends, or in this case, you know, with the remake, five. And, you know, but it's also like very cheeky because, yeah, you have Eric. And it's like in the first one, They find these tapes and, you know, they have nothing really better to do. So they decide to like sit around it and listen to it. And that awakens the evil. But here, I just cannot help but like find it really, really fucking funny that like there's a book wrapped in barbed wire and a trash bag that's bound in flesh. And you have Eric, who seems like the wise one of the group, just, you know, going off of his sort of, I don't know, his nature and he ends up cutting it and then going through the pages that say like do not read this latin and like he just reads it and then you're like oh you moron and then throughout the rest of the movie he seems to he ends up being like the voice of reason for much of the film of like we need to do this i don't think it's this and it's so funny when like i don't know how many times i've watched this now probably like six or seven but i watched it this time and i was like olivia like you are so much to blame for a lot of this shit happening because she's like she's so hard-headed and stubborn she's like why would we take her to the hospital like we're doing like i'm doing everything that they would do and this is like okay you need to like take your ego down this person has third degree burns get her to a hospital and it's just like your chances of leaving you're watching this film sort of unfold almost in real time and it's like you're chance of an exit is slowly disappearing or or i guess maybe quickly but i don't know it sort of it sort of adds to this like you know buildup of tension and horror that is happening in this very limited setting and that's what i like love about it it's like you have these things happening with a shard of glass a needle to the face you have a crowbar that splits apart a hand and probably one of like the most horrific displays of like practical effects and then you know you have this meat cutter that's probably from 1981 but you know your first introduction to it it's like cutting through probably the grossest roast beef i've ever seen in my life and yeah you have all these, like simple sort of very real tools and it's just using them against its characters and yeah it just adds to the sort of visceral nature to it where you know uh a crowbar is hitting someone four times in the head and they're just laying there and everything looks and feels real. And yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, going back to the maniac remake, I think the reason that that worked really well is because they also maintain practical effects. Like when you have Elijah Wood's character uh, rip back the prostitute's scalp practical effect and it's disgusting. And it's probably like, you know, one of my like top 10 most like you know, viscerally hard hitting scenes in horror.
0: You know, his approach to violence and whatnot. Like with Eric, I think it's so funny that you, you know, you mentioned uh, the fact that like he's responsible for opening this book, which nobody with any sense of reason would do. You <laughs> know, uh, I just love though that in the second half of the film, his dialogue is mostly spent just like chastising David oh, yeah. and just being like. I don't know if you've noticed, but like nothing is all right. She just cut her fucking arm off. Like he has so many little lines like that, that I absolutely love. And the fact that like he mentions it to David once about like, oh, I opened the book and I read from it and nobody else knows that. But he almost carries it like, like he forgot almost that he's responsible for it in that regard. Uh, So I get a kick out of some of his dialogue later on. But, you know, one thing that. Uh, You know, the last two maybe times I've watched this, like you, I think I've seen this, you know, six or seven times. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's interesting the way that he channels violence and I would almost say it's akin to channeling Raimi in the sense that this violence is very slapsticky in the sense that, like, yeah, he's getting hit in the face with a crowbar four or five times, and then he's still able to get up. And, you know, his number one solution to everything is duct tape, right? He duct tapes wounds and everything that, you know, you would still bleed, you'd still bleed out from. It's not necessarily the uh, – works for, like, the duct tape company. Like, he's definitely duct tape in this film. Yeah. And I think that it's – the violence is carried and shot in a way that is, you know – it's visceral and brutal and, you know, you hear and feel each of the, you know, whacks from the crowbar thanks in part to, you know, the practical work and the sound mm-hmm. design. But there is sort of a slap stickiness there in the sense that like, yeah, he's still alive after getting hit in the face four or five times, which I think actually does a good job of, you know, channeling Raimi in a sense. Like it very similar to the fact that, you know, when um, when Mia vomits all over Olivia, right? She's got this... Cartoonish projectile of it's not even blood, right? It's like orange, and it's they got all, bits of this and that in yeah. it. Yeah, and so even that in and of itself is like kind of cartoonish, which channels Ramy. But at the same time, when you start to see, you know, the ramifications of that and what it does to her, and how that is how you know the the possession was spread. I mean, it takes on a much more disturbing nature of just the process of which. The curse and possession passes from one person to the next. Um, it's kind of also like when Mia's in the basement and grabs Natalie and then, you know, slices her tongue in half with the knife and then makes out with her and basically is like getting these fluids into her mouth, which is so uncomfortable. It, obviously, it's uncomfortable for the first part that you have to watch somebody, you know, sever their, split their tongue down the middle with a French. knife, but then like having a sexual nature to it on top of that just makes that such an unbelievably uncomfortable and disturbing scene. And then you realize, Oh, it's actually to spread this, you know, the continued curse and possession. And yeah, it just has, there's notes of Raimi throughout the movie, but I love that he's able to, Alvarez is able to take that and then still make it his own in a way that doesn't feel out of place. It feels perfectly fitting within that film. And, you know, I think that that's, right there is like the example of why I like remakes mm. and why I'm never that person. That's like, well, how could you remake that? You'll never top the original. And it was like, well, then you get a filmmaker that clearly, you know, has a vested interest in that IP, in that franchise, and then can approach that world with their own sensibilities as a filmmaker. It's not always going to work, obviously like with anything, but I think that it gives you the potential for films like this, or, you know, like maniac where it takes things and, a slightly different direction, but it's capitalizing on what made those original films I think so memorable, just in a different way. It doesn't even have to be a game changer. It's mm-hmm. just doing it giving it a breath of fresh air that might not necessarily resemble entirely what you fell in love with originally, but it's going to give you, hopefully, a refined rendition of it that, you know, takes some swings, whether they be minor or large.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing is that like, you know, let's just I'll just go off of the, the the power that is stranger things season four right now where it's like you have a lot of younger generations now discovering Kate Bush because of running up that hill but it's like I would have hated if it was a cover and it doesn't matter how great the cover is uh I just I'm just, especially because it's a show that's set in 1986 so it feels more fitting to actually use the original song but you know uh, that's not always the case but i still wouldn't be fully i wouldn't still be like you know raging and want that to like you know obviously not be in there because yeah some people hear the cover they'll look it up there's i mean our access information is so immediate now they'll look it up and then they'll probably be able to jump down and, and listen to the original but i mean the thing about the slapstick in this is that it's almost not done on like a case-to-case basis where it's like, oh, like that's funny or like that's done for like, you know, sort of kicks. It's all done like on a repetitious basis where it's just like, okay, we have Eric who I guess if this film was, you know, shot in the seventies or took place in the seventies, like he would be like your quintessential, like sort of maybe either stoner or geek or both. And, you know, he takes a massive brunt. Like he he gets he he slips on face skin that's on the floor, and he hits his lower back on the toilet. Then he gets stabbed with a shard of glass to the chest. He gets a needle to the face repeatedly. Then he gets a nail gun, and then he gets like he gets I I don't know like twenty five nails shot in him, and they're, they're <laughs> like two inch nails. And then he gets, then he gets a crowbar to the hand, a crowbar to the head, and he eventually you know dies but the thing that like ends up being funny about it is just how often and how long he takes a beating and gets back up and he's always doing it with sort of like a chuckle and, you know and i my, i think like one of my new favorite things in horror is like you know okay it's not new i shouldn't say that um but it's like tough geeks it's like going back to like for me like the hills have eyes remake you have aaron stanford playing doug bukowski who's like you know tucked in shirt he's got glasses the the dad is you know very disapproving of him and he's kind of written as you know a geek in a way but he's a fucking badass he ends up taking out like the entire clan saving the day and to an extent i think eric is that and he you know doesn't save the day because that's taking away uh a lot of credit to mia but he's one tough mother throughout this entire movie but the like the abuse he endures ends up being very very funny and it's like it's and then that's to me is like sort of a a weird display of slapstick in which you're just like building off it off of itself until it's like the biggest block of jenga and it comes crashing down and it's sort of a, a a weird joy like a weird cathartic joy to see and yeah. I mean, I think, I think like you're definitely not wrong in that it has its own humor. It's just, I think played very differently, but again, that's what I love. And that you know, it's like with maniac, uh, one of the differences of that films that it doesn't take place in New York city, it takes place in LA. And I think that it is such like uh, especially cause it's sh- like from the POV of, of the killer, like it's such a location based film where like it sort of bleeds into the horror and the characters and like the sort of like the energy of the film um that it really works and like yeah like you said like i mean with these remakes those slight touches are there to me of what like really helps move a remake into its own into its own realm its own territory because you know like i stated before i would love to have more of these films with these with this world you know and i mean I say this world even though it's supposed to be you know its own requel kind of thing but you know it's that doesn't even need to be a thing really that almost feels like an easter egg like ash's car being there and it being you know something of a sequel kind of thing but like it's it's a standalone and like the best horror remakes are standalones because like when i watch house of wax i'm not thinking of the vincent price film at all
0: all right, let's uh, let's chat about that finale, and then we can uh, we can wrap up because you know this is, and you touched upon it briefly, like the film has been doling out so much brutal, unrelenting, not only oppression because of the environment factors and whatnot that we've talked about, but you know the quite literally physical bombardment that these people's bodies have been uh, victimized in, and, and you know, it, Mia finally having the chance to have a cathartic release. You know, having this reconciliation with her brother and kind of have allowing to have that arc before he passes away. And, you know, obviously seeing her friends get killed and whatnot. Like getting to have this scene act as the catharsis for all of these different emotions that she's going through and all these different events. And then again, like Alvarez getting to crank things up to 11 essentially. And the fact that, like, I think they said the film had like what 70, Thousand gallons of blood, and they used fifty, I think, for that scene. Yeah, something so aggressive a thousand in the beginning, but you're right. Yeah, it's seventy thousand, and they used fifty thousand just for the the rate. Just just for that finale, which you know, again, talking about channeling Ramy, like he's able to take the excessive nature, whether it be you know slapstick stuff for humor, but for here, it's more about just you know feeding that unrelenting brutality. But then doing the same thing in terms of like, yeah, it's not only just going to rain blood, it's going to rain more blood than you've ever seen in your life or of that nature. And, you know, I love that in this cathartic act, the film is still not willing to waver from doling out punishment, right? It's not just that, you know, she gets the chainsaw and then she gets to saw this demon that crawls out of the ground. Like, no, she has to lose her fucking hand first and not just Mm -hmm. like it gets ripped off. By the demon, or the demon eats it, or something like that. No, she quite literally has to rip it off herself. um, And, you know, obviously flips the truck over on top of it. And then you have to watch this agonizing moment of, again, not just one, nothing is clean in this movie. And that's what I really, really love about it, right? It, everything has to be painstaking in capturing every strand and every thread in a manner that, and, you know, it helps, of course, that she sells it as well as she does. But I mean, There is such a nastiness to the movie, but I don't know. I feel that like it's nasty, but I don't bounce off of this movie the same way that I do other movies. Maybe that it's kind of like all they have is like, oh, let's let's just be shitty to a female protagonist or female characters. Like there's a way in which you can be nasty and dole out this punishment to characters you come to care for. But you're still giving them that cathartic moment, even if at the end of the day, they're the last one standing.
1: Yeah, I. I mean, I think it would be mean if it didn't give Mia a chance. I think it would be mean if it pigeonholed her or it ended up. Uh, I guess if like if her hand got pinned and that was then and that was it, and she ended up just sort of getting getting thrown to the wolves and just getting sort of devoured by the demon. But I mean, the whole sort of crux of this of the story of her, like, or at least like like her character arc has always been about persevering and it's like you know in the face of her mom's you know being ill her mom dying her her having to take care of her on her own despite you know having a brother who lives off in Seattle uh persevering in the face of drug addiction it's you know for throughout this entire film you could say it's mean-spirited but I would disagree I think it's uh it's hard-spirited but it's not mean because i think it allows for perseverance to sort of reign true and at the end i mean she gets her hand pinned by the uh the jeep that the sort of the the girl from the beginning who's now like you know possessed and is crawling forth from the ground ends up throwing on her but you know through this it's, it's another decision that she has to make of persevering and she rips her hand off in order to survive but Like my favorite thing about the characters and like, you know, sort of working with the practical effects is that like everything that happens to them feels real. It looks real and it is permanent to the characters, like within the story. But the thing that changes is like the eyes, the eyes end up being like, you know, it's the window to their soul. And that's the thing that resorts back when they're not possessed because you know, that is their sort of lifeline, their connection to each other. Meanwhile, you have these permanent damages happening to their bodies, you know, whether it's getting your hand split or your hand ripped off. And yeah, I think, you know, her fighting at the end is, it's not mean. I mean, I I, I don't, I, I, th- I think the way that we frame how cruel or mean a picture is, is very much based off of what gender it's happening to or who it's happening, like when I watch Hostile part two. I often think like that's a very mean-spirited movie because you have like Heather Matarazzo's character. Uh I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Uh her character ends up getting like, you know, she's sort of the the outsider, the less popular one, like like the quote unquote the film's version of like an ugly duckling. And she ends up getting strung up by her heels and this like bled out. Like she just ends up being like, sort of stuck like a pig and it's very mean it's very mean to that character it's mean to a lot of the characters and i know that's like you know that's the point but the thing like with here is like that's not the point it just it 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 positions these characters as being able to overcome their scenarios and a lot of times you know you need your set amount of victims that's a sort of like goes with like the dna of this genre and but you know you have this brother and sister sort of at least reconciling with each other in a way to the to the, the best that they can when you have you know a, deadites or demonites coming for you and you're raining blood but like yeah that like finale i mean i really really love the movie even up until then but at that point like it just becomes so like metal as fuck. like it's just raining blood you get this beautiful like cabin on like in the background on fire she's got this chainsaw there's like strong woman just like played beautifully by jane levy and it's just brutal and i think the thing that's like great about it is that like it's not edited to shit like it's just sort of allows them to exist in this space and i think one of my like the most beautiful things about it and i i will say i know like the unrated cut I appreciate the glimpses of gore that it has because I mean it adds five minutes so a lot of it is like you know five seconds here 10 seconds there and I do think that it works really well in showing more blood but there's just some dialogue beats that don't work and, and there's like a more extended scene with Eric when he's possessed he's like crawling through the fire um and he like starts to chuckle and like I don't know it just doesn't necessarily work for me I I I appreciate the gore in the unrated cut, but I would much rather watch the 91 minute uh, theatrical. I think it's a bit tighter, a bit sweeter, and it's just more to the point, um, but I love, and I think I bring that up because the ending has sort of a mid credit scene, I guess, of Mia's character walking down the street. She collapses from exhaustion. She gets picked up by I think some guy whose name is like Bubba or something. It's a, definitely like another like hillbilly name. And then she's like lying in the back and the camera sort of like the music starts to crescendo and like it's, it's focus on her eyes and she like opens them up and then it cuts and it feels almost like what the descent was doing. And I don't really like it. Um, but I love the ending of the film in general when she sort of, it's when it stops raining blood and she walks out to the woods and it gets this like, this almost oversaturation of like sort of colors in a way, not like too fantastical, but it feels like the film opening up into a fairy tale. And I think that's like really cool when it comes to like the juxtaposition of what the rest of the film looks looked like, which is like a fucking nightmare. And you know, I really I really like it. I think the ending I think it's great that she survives. Uh I don't care that her brother doesn't I like and I think that the thing with with the film and the way it tethers the characters to each other and like what we're shown and what we're told, you could probably care about David. You could probably care about their um them being siblings and their their, you know, but I I just I didn't really. I cared about Mia. Um I didn't hate David, but I really have no strong feelings. Um but yeah, I mean that ending just like pours fifty thousand gallons of of blood down and I just I love it. I, I will say sort of looking at, you know, Mia's use of the chainsaw, I do really appreciate because in the original Evil Dead when you have Ash who needs to uh, behead uh, Linda because she's possessed, he's like in the shack with the chainsaw sort of like grappling with this like, you know, idea of murdering his girlfriend. And it's played tragically. I think there's definitely like, you know, a, a, a tragic note to it. It's a little bit played for some laughs but just mostly like sort of uh facial um sort of comedic beats but in this they're just like i don't know if shiloh fernandez can act that out so we're just gonna have you fucking go in with the chainsaw and that's (sighs) like you know and this blood splatters all over him and the camera pulls back outside the shack and it's like this beautiful like it's like lit beautifully red and i just like love these little bits of flourishes of color throughout because it's very much like uh like the whole film sort of looks like a a fall leaf to a point, like just very like browned, crispy. And yeah, it sort of never wavers. And I think that's its commitment to its visual tone. is like its panache is like really like I want more of it, you know, that kind of style.
0: Yeah. I think that that's probably one of the best compliments you could give to a remake, right? The fact that it's able to present a new visual style for something that You know, you might say at the beginning feels familiar, but you can't say it looks familiar even from the opening moments of it, right? You can say, well, this character, this setting, this variable here, there, lore, whatnot is familiar. It's like, well, yeah, sure. I guess I could give you that. But at the end of the day, like overall visually, it looks so unique and so different in a way that, Mm -hmm. you know, is obviously looks fantastic. But I think that the fact that the new direction that this movie takes, whether it be the look or the tone and all these things – it all flows so well together. And, you know, like you'd said, in the unrated cut, it's a little, it gives a little more length to moments where you're like, well, there's no real reason to do that because this is arguably one of the weaker elements of the theatrical version, right? I don't think that necessarily the dialogue they extend, it's doing it any favors mm-hmm. um, other than, like we'd mentioned, uh, it fleshing out the practical work and whatnot, which you can appreciate, but that's not the brunt of that, you know, five extra minutes and whatnot. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that, Something that I always come back to with this movie, and it's why it's one of the remakes that I showed other people, like my buddies and whatnot, that maybe aren't necessarily into horror, in that this is more palatable, I think, than if I was to put, you know, The Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2 in front of them, or even Army of Darkness, right? And I think that this movie, again, like, it's, I guess saying that it has slapstick approach to violence, though not in terms of, you know, having laughs in mind, it's more so just, you know, it being so excessively over the top. I find that this is one of those movies that, you know, my buddies can enjoy on some level for the practical work and whatnot, and then if anything, it makes going back and showing them the older Evil Dead movies, it makes it more palatable because it's giving them that, you know, that excessiveness, but it's giving it in this lovable doofus uh, Ashley and whatnot and you know I actually just did that over the weekend with one of my buddies who's like yeah I'm not gonna he's not really into like 80s movies or 90s movies or this or that for horror and now it's like I'm running through the original trilogy with him and he's enjoying it because it's like well I've shown you the more modernized like super brutally violent thing that you were kind of expecting and now I'm going to show you something that's able to channel that same energy but in a more comical lighthearted nature which you know I think that It's no wonder that this is a movie that you can really return to with some frequency. You know what I mean? Like we mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned Inside earlier, like that's another brutal, brutally violent horror movie, but it's not necessarily one that I'm revisiting, you know, uh, six or seven times or anything like that. So I don't know. It's Alvarez's ability to package that approach to violence and it be so uncomfortable at every turn and being an unnerving movie uh, basically for the entire runtime, it never really takes that you know its foot off of your neck and then still being able to give proper attention to like the character arc and, and everything like that in a way that feels meaningful and even if you know you could say, you know this character is a trope of that or this or that arc is familiar, it all works in a really cohesive way for this movie that holds it together in a way that, you know, it, it, I think it makes this movie incredibly rewatchable in a way that kind of could elude other movies that, you know, so heavily rely on like, hey, I'm going to gross you out at every turn conceivably for, you know, like we said, 70 minutes or something like that. But yeah, man, this was, uh, this was a blast getting to chat Evil Dead with you. This is a film that I hadn't had a chance to talk about in any real length. And I was happy to have you on and, uh, you know, chat about what we enjoy so much about it as a remake.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I watched it last night. Uh, I, I you know, got high for it. Don't really recommend that, which I think is, about it. Is that it's kind of like a, you know, a Cirque du Soleil show on like bath salts, where it's like if I watch <laughs> dead by dawn, uh, or army of darkness, like, you know, great THC friendly films, but this like, you know, it's very sobering.
0: Yeah. I watched it with, uh, with headphones on with an edible and that was a, a bad fucking idea. But I, yeah, I definitely get what you mean in terms of like the originals being more of, lack of a better phrase, it's more of like communal horror that I'd watch a throng with buddies like rabbing beers or, you know, edibles or smoking or this and that. And those are much more palatable for that environment. Whereas with this, when you're, you know, you're enjoying an edible or smoking or whatnot, it's almost like nails on a chalkboard, but the chalkboard's your skin kind of thing, which- yeah. Talk about, like, chasing that initial feeling of fear, like we mentioned earlier. Like, this movie definitely capitalizes on yeah. that, but almost in an anxiety-inducing manner at times. Uh, yeah, for sure. All right, man. Well, thanks again. This was a pleasure. Yeah, yeah of course not. Thank you for inviting me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow, at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.